Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy. Today's show is slightly different as it marks the end of our second season. So for this episode, I wanted to bring you 10 moments from some of the fantastic guests we've welcomed onto the show over the last year. Anthony Scaramucci was once the White House communications director, but he's now a prominent Trump critic. One of the biggest areas of focus throughout Donald Trump's presidency was the way he communicates his agenda to the media and the American people. As someone who took on the role of spinning Donald Trump's position, he has a unique perspective on this issue. Here's Anthony Scaramucci talking about how he would shape Trump's message if he was still in the White House. If you'd stayed in the White House, you would have been Donald Trump's message guy, essentially, out there sharing his message, shaping the way what his administration was doing was seen by the public. Donald Trump's taken to calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus, despite the CDC director saying that it's wrong and inappropriate to do so, and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus warning that calling it that could lead to ignorant attacks and racist assaults. Why do you think he chooses to use this phrase and similarly divisive and controversial language? Is he trying to shift focus, shift the blame? What's he doing with this? And would you advise him to have done this if you've been his message guy? Well, I mean, listen, the the first thing I would say to you is that nobody is the president's message guy other than the president. And I think that's one of the big problems. Uh, uh, Stephanie, who's now the press secretary, uh, if you want to characterize a, uh, a mooch as an 11-day time period, she's lasted 40 mooches, uh, but she's she hasn't done one press conference. So uh, I'm I'm one nothing on her on the press conferences. He won't let anybody do anything other than him. That's a big problem because all he is almost like a funnel. Or he's almost like forcing all of the information uh, and all of the strategy and everything else to come through him. When the uh, John Bolton left as his national security advisor, um, uh, the president got to a microphone and said, "Well, you know, I don't really need him. I'm I'm making all the decisions anyway." So, so there's a big there's a big danger in that because it sort of creates tremendous dysfunctionality in the executive branch, but if you're asking specifically about the Chinese virus or the stupid saying of, of the Kung flu and all of this sort of stuff, I think it's very unnecessary. And I think it's uh, yes, someone, well, it originated in China. They called it the Spanish flu. They called it this, that, thing. I, I get that, but we're in a different era today than we were a hundred years ago. And if you really want societal progress and you want uh, an opening of our societies and you want to reduce xenophobia and you want to, you know, send out a very powerful political message that we're all basically the same. We have different political systems. We may look differently. We may live in different parts of the world. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, most of us, the majority of way larger than the majority, are just seeking good lives for our families and, you know, security and health and safety and all, all the typical things you go down the checklist and so when you say things like the chinese virus or you say the kung flu or you or you're going at that direction it allows for demonization of people lawrence lessig is an academic attorney and activist 
who's become a prominent figure in the campaign to replace the electoral college system in America, as well as addressing other electoral issues such as campaign finance and gerrymandering. With the debate growing over whether the American electoral system is outdated, here's Lawrence Lessig talking about the movement to fix it. You know that the current system of government cannot be fixed and reformed with one election or one political figure. Is that part of the reason why these actions that you've proposed, which many might agree with out there, haven't occurred yet? Because instead of focusing on reforms that might, in the long run, provide a huge benefit to the US political system, politicians instead want to engage with these smaller, short-term policies that have an immediate noticeable effect so they can receive credit for those when they run for the election. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an ordinary business model to being a politician. Um, you know, in the presidency of the United States, it's very clear what that business model is. You know, I was a believer in Barack Obama. I think Barack Obama, when he first started running for president, genuinely wanted to fix the system. But I'm certain that, you know, the very first day he sat down as president with his chief of staff, if he had said to his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, look, I'm going to take on the corrupting influence of money in politics and I'm going to fix the system. Rahm Emanuel would have said to him, look, you do that, you're a one-term president. Because to take on the system, you got to take on your own party. You take on your own party, that means you'll get not a single significant piece of legislation passed. And so at the end of four years, people will look back and say, you're a total failure. It's time to get rid of President Obama. And, and that argument is true. It's sensible. It's actually uh, the right understanding that any new president should bring to this question, which means that we can't rely on normal politicians or the normal political process to fix this kind of problem. We have to build a movement or an understanding that's above it or beyond it if we're ever going to have a chance to do anything with it. Representative Jim McGovern might be the chair of the House Rules Committee, but he's dedicated his political career to fighting for human rights around the world, from Tibet to Myanmar, to Hong Kong. Here's Representative Jim McGovern talking about why it's so important for the United States to stand up for human rights. A focus of your career has been international human rights. It's something you've prided yourself on and, and really focused on throughout your career, advocating for individuals across the world from El Salvador to Tibet. And throughout that time that you've been working on this, the US has been seen for a long time part of that as a leading figure on the world stage fighting for human rights, because that was what the White House made clear was a priority. But under the Trump administration, there are people now who believe the US is shirking that responsibility, which is impacting the way other countries behave as well, realizing they no longer have that US watchdog keeping an eye on what they're doing. Do you feel the current administration has failed in its duty to advocate for human rights? On what impact have you seen that having? Well, I do. Uh, and I'm sad to say that. Uh, it's very, very disappointing to me. Uh, I've always believed that if the United States stands for anything, we need to stand out loud and four square for human rights. And um, and in Congress, I mean, thankfully, I mean, we, we still have a bipartisan coalition uh, that uh, comes together around uh, many human rights issues. But when the president of the United States uh, thinks of human rights as an afterthought, uh, when he's more interested in a business deal uh, than in uh, protecting people from persecution, um, it is, it is uh, very, very disheartening. Uh, look, um, I believe that... Uh, that uh, you know that that we that, you know, as as a signatory to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 
we got to live up to what we signed, uh, and um, and that we ought to uh, insist uh, that everybody's dignity uh, be respected and everybody's uh, everybody be, everybody's rights be protected. Um, and I'm not just talking about halfway around the world. I'm also saying halfway down the block. I mean, I think we have to uh, care about the human rights uh, in the United States as well as ever, everywhere else in the world. But when I see the president of the United States uh, kind of basically turn a blind eye to the terrible atrocities that are occurring, not just in China, but I mean, in Saudi Arabia, where a Washington Post journalist was murdered and dismembered. Uh, and the president basically uh, was an apologist uh, for the royal family that was responsible for giving the order so, so he could sell more weapons. Uh, to Saudi Arabia, I, I, I find that uh, unconscionable. So, uh, yeah, I, I am deeply disappointed uh, that the Trump administration has walked away from human rights, uh, and I think it has hurt our reputation around the world, uh, and I think it has given a green light to a lot of authoritarian leaders uh, to behave uh, in, uh, in, in very unfortunate ways. Scott Santens has been researching and advocating for a universal basic income for more than seven years now. So as campaigners call for Congress to finally implement a policy due to the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, he appeared on the show to talk about the benefits of UBI. Here's Scott Sandens talking about how UBI can help to solve many of the problems society is facing. One reason why universal basic income has been pushed into the mainstream is this growing concern, and you've written about it, over how automation is creating unemployment by taking jobs from ordinary citizens and essentially giving work to robots and machines. You've written how, quote, the future of the United States depends on the immediate adoption of UBI. How do you see UBI helping to address this issue here? And is it not just putting a Band-Aid on a growing unemployment crisis that requires vaster and greater solutions to, to resolve the problems here? Yeah, I don't think that UBI is the end-all, be-all solution. It's that I think that so many more problems become solvable once UBI is in place. It, the fact that we don't have a solid economic floor actually leads to a lot of problems. And, and part of that is a complete lack of bargaining power. When you have more, bar when you have no bargaining power, that's part of the reasons why that wages have stagnated uh, as productivity has increased. Like there's there's no way for people to demand their fair share of the overall national productivity if they're losing more and more power. And I, I think that that what we're seeing right now is actually essentially automation um, put on like fast forward. Like we're seeing so many people lose their jobs all over. People are being thrown into unemployment systems, especially here in the U.S. where we did that on, on purpose. And unemployment systems are just not designed for this. They're, they're terribly designed. They, you only get income if you're unemployed. And that's only if you qualify, you, you go through the bureaucracy, you meet all the conditions, and maybe you'll get some income while you're unemployed. And then what? So we, we want a system that actually enables people to really kind of 
more like a trampoline. Like you, there's no friction there. You can, you're unemployed. You're able to bounce right back because it's already there. You don't have to go through these, the steps and, and whatnot and maybe get something or come crashing to the ground. Um, you know, we want a much more flexible, responsive system that is just automatically there. John Carl is a seasoned journalist, having served recently as the president of the White House Correspondents Association and ABC News' chief White House correspondent. As someone who's covered four presidents and known Donald Trump since 1994, he was well-placed to give an insight into Trump's relationship with the media. Here's John Carl talking about Trump's obsession with the media's perception of him. You're unique to some of your White House colleagues, as you've known Trump since you first met in 1994 when you were working at the New York Post and he was a property developer. How's Trump and his relationship with the media evolved since then, in your experience? I mean, it, it's been remarkably consistent, actually. I mean, there are, he, he certainly uh, the, the stakes are entirely different. He's president of the United States. He's not some flamboyant uh, real estate developer. But back then, as now, he uh, was obsessive. Uh, uh, he was totally obsessed with his me with the media coverage. He loved to see his name in lights. He wanted to be uh, the middle of every story. Uh, he would. Uh, try to intimidate the press, but he would also uh, go to extraordinary lengths to court reporters. I mean, I was a very junior reporter uh, at the New York Post, which was at that time the fourth largest newspaper in the city of New York. And I was, um, you know, a, a basically a cub reporter who he had never heard of. And I, I was able to call the guy up and get him on the phone in, in no time. And, and, um, he, he wanted to be in the paper. He wanted to be the center of the story. And I, I now cover him as president. I have had the opportunity to cover four different presidents now. I have never seen somebody more obsessed with the way he is perceived in the news media. It's really, to a certain extent, all he cares about. That's true now, and that was true back then. Joe Walsh is a former Republican congressman and candidate in the party's 2020 presidential primary, but he left the GOP after it became the party of Trump. After the 2020 election was over and it became clear Trump had been defeated, Walsh appeared on the show to talk about the future of the GOP. Here's Joe Walsh talking about how Trumpism is now the Republican Party. Your approach during the election was not just to fight Trump, it was to fight Trumpism. And whatever happens after this election, we will have seen more than 69 million people vote for Donald Trump after four years of his divisive presidency. They looked at everything he's done, they looked at everything he said, and they said they want to give him four more years in office. What do we do now in that fight to make sure Trumpism is truly defeated? in America to make sure that there isn't a resurgence in two or four years in the Republican Party, that it's stamped out well and truly for good. So, my friend, the good news is Biden won. The good news is Trump lost. But I, I have to be honest, I am still I've got real mixed, sad feelings about this election period because, Edward, I believe Trumpism won uh, the way that Trump lost the way that he now 
can sell the fact, the lie, the lie, excuse me, that this election was stolen from him. Donald Trump now, Edward, has, after he's lost, he has a greater hold over the Republican Party than he did six months ago. Trumpism now is the Republican Party. Uh, this is horrible. Uh, and let's remember, though, let's remember, Edward, Donald Trump got, as you said, 68, 69 million votes. These are all people in rural America. He turned them out. Because he lost by a, a little bit, because it wasn't a complete repudiation of him, these supporters, Edward, are going to cling to him. And because they're going to cling to him, all of the Republican elected officials now around the country, they are going to be beholden to Trump. I'm a dark Irishman. I think Trumpism is here to stay, and I think it's going to dominate the Republican Party for a number of years. Glenn Kirshner served in the U.S. Attorney Office for the District of Columbia for 24 years and has over 30 years of trial experience as a federal prosecutor. With the post-election conversation turning to if and how Trump should be held accountable for his actions, Kirshner gave his take on the situation from a legal perspective. Here's Glenn Kirshner talking about whether Trump should be prosecuted now he's out of office. One of the debates that's underway right now is whether or not Donald Trump should be investigated for and if found to have broken any laws charged for crimes committed prior to and during his presidency. One suggestion that's emerged is whether the DOJ under Joe Biden should investigate this. Another is potentially a special prosecutor, have one appointed to investigate it so they are separate to Joe Biden's administration. Do you think that should occur? Or do you agree with others who suggested that taking such a move could set a dangerous precedent for future administrations when the Republicans get back into power. Not holding criminal politicians accountable for their crimes sets a dangerous precedent. We tried that with Richard Nixon. When we turned the other cheek, we let bygones be bygones. We put the long national nightmare behind us by declining to hold a criminal president accountable. That's the opposite of justice. That is the very definition of injustice. As a prosecutor for 30 years, you know what I never once told a victim or when I was handling murder cases for more than two decades in Washington, D.C., what I never told the family of a victim who had been killed, I never once told them the way to heal, the way to achieve justice is by declining to prosecute your perpetrator, your attacker, the person who took the life of your loved one. That's insanity. That's an abdication of a, of a civilized government's responsibility to hold those who would break our laws accountable. And when the people breaking our laws are the highest government officials, um, if we turn the other cheek and we decline to hold these people accountable, we have taken one enormous leap on the road to the end of our republic, and we have certainly encouraged tomorrow's political criminals 
to double down on what Donald Trump did because Donald Trump wasn't held accountable while he was in office. If he's not held accountable when he gets out of office, we will be sending a powerful message that the moment anybody takes power, you need to crime your butts off because you're going to get away with it all. Dr. Howard Foreman is the professor of public health at Yale University and one of the leading voices on the US government's response to COVID-19. With America in the midst of a pandemic, having racked up the largest number of cases and fatalities of any country from the virus, he offered his insight into how the White House and Congress reacted to the pandemic. Here's Howard Foreman talking about what went wrong in America's COVID-19 response. How has America, a developed nation, a nation that's supposedly one of the wealthiest in the world, recorded the most number of COVID-19 cases of any nation by a significant margin. What went wrong? I think a lot of things went wrong. I think some of it is the nature of America. I mean, if, if you go back, you know, several hundred years, the United States was sort of founded by libertarians uh, escaping government tyranny. Um, uh, you know, a revolution, everything that has followed has been all about uh, pushing back against authority. And that probably doesn't serve us really well when you need sort of a unified response and one that respects the rule of government. So that didn't help to start with. Um, we're in a particularly divisive time in history with a, a president who seems to thrive on divisiveness. And that probably made it worse. And then several errors that probably are not even attributable to the president himself uh, at the CDC getting test kits ready um, and our investment in public health infrastructure over the last uh, you know 13 or 14 years being down again preceding uh, President Trump and, and certainly happening during the Bush administration during the Obama administration those things didn't help and we found ourselves in sort of a perfect storm of, of a failure. And that storm has resulted in a vast number of deaths that are nowhere near at their end. Chris Brown is the president of Brady United Against Gun Violence, an organization dedicated to ending gun violence in America. With President Joe Biden now in office and Democrats in complete control of Congress, Conversation has turned to what measures can and should be implemented to make America a safer country. Here's Chris Brown talking about how the filibuster must be eliminated before the gun control debate can take place. You've expressed support for the abolition of the filibuster. There are Democrats in the Senate who equally support abolishing the filibuster and that 60 vote rule allowing a simple majority for the closure of debate so that policies like this can actually enter into law. But obviously the abolition of the filibuster would open up concerns on the other side, which is when Republicans take back office, whether they would attempt to overturn or slow down any progress that has been made when it comes to gun control legislation. Democrats are willing to work with you and have expressed that intention. The Biden administration has expressed their intention to work on this issue. But GOP lawmakers take a very different view. Do you believe it's important here to secure a broad consensus before going forward with legislation to address gun control? Or do you think that 
given the scale of the problem, a simple majority, a narrow legislative victory like what would happen in the Senate is enough right now? I think that the American people have consensus on this issue, right? You can't find an issue in American political life where you could poll, and I, I, as a mother, I can say, I think that includes motherhood and probably apple pie, right? These staples of America that poll more strongly than background checks. The last poll that was conducted said 94% of Americans believe that our background check system should be strengthened, that the Brady law should be strengthened. What we have is a bit of a dichotomy between the elected representatives, to many of whom remain at the uh, behest of the NRA, opposing the expansion of the law in a manner that is totally inconsistent with what their constituents want. And so what I think you would find is a real conundrum for many of these elected officials having to vote on whether to expand this protection or not. And what has stopped progress in the history of our movement is not so much that we lose when it comes to a vote, it's that the filibuster in the Senate anyway, stops it from coming to the floor in the first place. I don't think that we would have uh, an expansion of the Brady law passed without a single Republican vote. I think we will get many Republican votes in the House if it's voted on, just like we did last year when HR 8 was considered. And I think we will have Republicans vote for expansion of the Brady background check system if it comes to that. And what I will say also is this, in America, we have a mass shooting almost every day. Um, that is qualified as uh, four or more people shot in the same location by the same shooter. The reality that if the House passes an expanded Brady background check law and something horrific like El Paso or Dayton, uh, certainly thinking about the horrors that could have been, for example, on January 6th, if many of those people had been armed, they weren't because DC laws are as strong as they are, um, then that will put many lawmakers in an incredibly uncomfortable position not to uh, be pushing not to move this bill forward and vote no. So I think the real opportunity here with revisiting filibuster is having the opportunity to debate this issue on the floor. And with the facts behind us and the American people so strongly supportive of this, I have a hard time seeing how we would not prevail. Tom Steyer is a former presidential candidate and the founder of Next Gen America. He has used his platform to raise awareness of and combat the issue of climate change, urging America to take a leading role on this issue. Here's Tom Steyer on how Congress needs to tackle injustice in America if it's going to fight climate change. As part of his work to tackle climate change, President Biden is establishing the first ever White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council. How interlinked are climate issues and these equality issues that he's raising here? They're absolutely linked. There is no way to address climate change effectively without addressing environmental, racial, and economic injustice. And that's something that, you know, I, I was running a, a statewide uh, proposition in California over 10 years ago 
And it was very clear that unless, if you're gonna talk about pollution, if you're gonna talk about environmentalism, if you're gonna talk about climate action, unless you're going to the people who are most directly affected by pollution and environmental degradation, which is underserved black and brown communities who have air and water that literally makes them sick, then you're not gonna have the people who are most directly affected. Your policies won't, in fact, be the human-centered policies that are necessary. So you can't fit this in at the end. This is not a, a nice add-on. This is absolutely essential. Justice is absolutely essential to any effective climate policy in the United States or around the world. That's all for this week and season two of The Hardy Report. We'll be taking a little break, but be back soon with a new season and an exciting new format that I can't wait to share with you. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast over the last 12 months and to every episode since we started in January 2019. For now, until next time, goodbye.